Welcome to the City on a Hill Church Forest Hills podcast. We exist to see our neighbors from every culture follow Jesus as King. We're glad you're here and thanks for listening. More information about the life and mission of City on a Hill can be found at coahforesthills.org. Thank you, Pre, for reading that. Thank you, Sue, also for uh, for uh, for your prayer. Um, you know, as, as Pre read and and uh, uh, both Portuguese and English, you know, one of the ways we celebrate. Uh, longing to continue growing as a multicultural church is through the celebration of various cultures that are represented in our in our body. And so um, we do partly do that through uh, the reading of scripture and, and, and various languages. So thank you for, uh, for reading uh, that for us this morning. Um, this morning, our values as a church are the gospel community and mission. The gospel is the good news that Jesus brought us together as this new family through his finished work on the cross. Uh, and so anybody from any background is welcome, welcomed by Jesus. So this morning you are welcomed by Jesus. You can't, you have the opportunity to be a part of his, uh, this new family through trusting him as your Lord and Savior. And we'd love to talk to you, with you about the, the, that this morning if you've not made that step yet. Uh, secondly, community is that family. Um it is the the people together centered around Jesus with a common hope, a common purpose, uh, a common confession that Jesus is Lord. And then, lastly, mission. We we exist to tell other people about that good news. So um, we we extend our lives uh, and the way that we live, and through actually telling others the gospel, uh, in order to see them be a part of uh, of God's new family. And so, a couple of announcements before we jump into the word today. Uh, one of those is this week is a Holy Week, so we will not be having community groups this Wednesday, uh, but we will be having a good. Friday service on Friday uh, online at 6.30 and 8 o'clock. We did two times this year um, so that people can engage, you know, depending on where you're at in life. Maybe you have little kids and you want to get them to bed and you want to be able to enjoy uh, the service. Um, you can do so. Um, we're going to be gathering together with our other City on a Hill Network churches. So um, you'll be, you may, may see some folks on there that you haven't seen in a while. So be sure to be a part of that. And then on Easter Sunday, next Sunday, it's one week away. We're really excited for a few reasons. One, we will be back in person. Um, and this will be the first of our weekly in-person services. So today, Today is the last praise. I pray to the Lord, the last uh, online only service that we'll be having. So I mean, if you're still not comfortable gathering in person, we will have an online component, but we do encourage you to come and be there in person. Um, and so you can make this great by doing a couple of things. Register as soon as possible. So if you've not registered yet, I mean, I think last time, last week when we did this, um, we, we had like, I think 15 people on Thursday. And then like, we had like 50 signed up by Saturday. So don't wait to the last minute. Help us prepare, um, especially if we need to look at creating more space for people. So please do that. Also invite people. Um, please invite people. Um, and so um, it, we, um, invite your friends, invite your neighbors. You'd be surprised how many people would be willing to come to an Easter service to so do so. Um, and then lastly, um, women's and men's retreats, save the dates. Women's retreat is going to be May 15th. Men's retreat is going to be the night of the 28th of May and May 29th. Um, both of those are going to be online. And so be sure to um, look out for some uh, some registration details on those. Uh, now, as up until now, as we've been looking at the life of David, uh, it's been, honestly, David's looked pretty good so far. David has looked like this pure, guiltless hero. Um, there's no flaws in, in David's story. It's like an old Western. It's very night and day. You have a good guy and a bad guy. And David comes across as this good guy. Um, and, and and so he is, he, up until now, he is this perfect picture of, of, of really what we would hope Jesus would look like. He is this hope. And that's why the story we look at today is so, it's so shattering. It completely shatters our image of David. 
It completely alters the way that we see David. And just last week, we looked at the covenant that God made with David, that his king, this kingdom would last forever. This king would be on the throne from the line of David for all eternity. And ultimately, we know that's Jesus. But the question that we run into this morning is, why would you include this story? Like, if you wanted to make David look as good as possible, why would you include this incredible story of failure? I mean, David is the golden boy. He's he's the one who the promised kingdom is, is given to. You think if you're trying to make him look good and keep people hopeful, you would leave this story out of the Bible. Um, it's kind of like uh, the movie, The Dark Knight. If you ever watched The Dark Knight, I'm going to ruin it. It's like 13 years old. You should have watched it by now. Um, but in this, in this story, it's, it's a Batman's movie. Um, Harvey Dent is the new district attorney. And uh, in, in this in the story, he is uh, described as Gotham's white knight. He's described as someone who um, is going to really be able to clean up crime in ways that Batman never could. And so, uh, and so, at one point in the movie, he has an incredible tragedy happen. He completely goes insane and starts killing people. And so, the, the commissioner and Batman decide that they can't let his legacy be tarnished because if it's tarnished, then all hope is gone for Gotham. And so, so they want to you know protect his image. The Bible doesn't do that. The Bible doesn't paint people to be better than they actually are. It, it actually exposes us. It exposes our heroes. It, it shows every little detail of their lives, not making them up, painting them to be uh, someone that they're not. It shows the depth of the human heart. It shows the capability of what it means to be human. The capability of our sinfulness is on display throughout the Bible. And you see this with every biblical hero. Um, and so I put hero in quotation marks because there are no biblical heroes. You look at Abraham, who's supposed to be the father of the faith, who tried to give his wife away twice. Like he, he tried to, he basically abandoned her and said, no, she, she's my sister, almost allowing her to be taken into another man's home. You see Jacob, who um, was was kind of a swindler. Jacob uh, was a liar. Uh, Jacob was, was was kind of a con artist, um, got deceived into marrying one woman, treated her pretty poorly and, because he wanted to marry his her sister. Um, you see people like Gideon, who started out well, but yet started to kind of read their own press clippings. You see... Throughout the Old Testament, you see cowardice, you see adultery, you see anger, you see deception, you see murder, you see polygamy, you see all sorts of sin. And even the New Testament doesn't get any better. The disciples look like idiots. They're doubters. They, they mess up. They fail. They fall. Peter goes one minute from cutting a dude's ear off because he's so passionate about following Jesus to denying Jesus in the next breath. The Apostle Paul, this incredible persecutor and murderer, is the one that God uses in order to give the gospel to Gentile people. And so it, we, we see this, and what it actually does, it, instead, of doing, instead of making the Bible seem less reliable, it actually does the opposite. It, it actually shows us that this isn't made up. Because if you were just writing the story to, to try to make it believable, to try to make it something that people would be attracted to, you wouldn't put these failures in here. You, you wouldn't put them in here. You wouldn't, if you're writing this, you wouldn't make yourself look this dumb. If you were faking it, you would come up with the best story possible. It's like in high school, if you played high school sports and you have that one high school like shining moment where, you know, it was like a 23 yard field goal in, in like perfect weather. Like 20 years later, it's a 48 yard field goal in a, a, a torrential downpour. The Bible doesn't do that. It, it tells us like we are. And David is supposed to be the best and he fails horribly. He, he sins. His life is absolutely wrecked by this sin. And so we have to really dig into the idea of what is sin. Sin is any act, any thought, any will, any desire that displeases God or is contrary to his word. 
And sin, the way it works is it doesn't just offend God. It almost always hurts others. And that's why in the great commandment, we have the, the idea of love the Lord your God with all your soul, heart, mind, and strength. And Jesus says, and there's one like this or tied to it, the love your neighbor as yourself. This idea of love wrapped up in it is trust and obedience, that we trust God loves us, we love him, and, and the expression of that love is to obey his word. And so we, we express love towards others by obeying God's command for their good. And so sin is the opposite of that. It is not loving God, not trusting him, disobeying him, which impacts and affects other people. See, the Bible exposes us and exposes our hearts. It shows us that we're not that different from David. And then, so the question of it for us often is, as we can ask everyone, is, do you think we're naturally good or naturally evil? And so in the late 19th century, early 20th century, people would have said that we're naturally good. They would have said that we're getting better. Marxism even said that evil isn't real. It's something that's really about circumstance, not about your heart. It's not about your intentions. People have good intentions, but if you just change the circumstances, then you can eradicate evil. Liberal Christianity actually began to take on this idea that you could get better until the atrocities of World War I and World War II. And people realized this is not a circumstance issue. This is a heart issue that plays itself out in the world. And so what we realize is that if we're honest, we're capable of immense evil, immense evil on a personal level that can flood out into a systemic level, that we, we are this evil. And so you might say, look, surely not. Surely I'm not capable of what David does here. But Tim Keller talks about the, the, uh, the illustration of an acorn in a tree. And he says, you know, if a tree, it, the full tree is inside the seed. And he said, and so if you put that seed in the ground and it gets watered and it's left unchecked, it will grow into a tree. And the same is true of sin. You and I are capable of the worst sin. The seed lies in our hearts. Jesus says this is where sin springs up from. And so the idea here is that you can't outwork sin. You, you can't self-help your way out of this. You can't improve your life enough in order to get away from sin. Sin has devastating effect on us, and there's only one way for us to address our sin. So let's look this morning at how sin picks us apart before we look at how we have a solution for sin. The first thing we look at is the idea that sin devours others. We see this from our text, that sin devours other people. Now, David, we see in verse one, he, he's not where he's supposed to be. It's in the spring of the year. Um, what uh, kingdoms would do is they can have like a rules, rules of engagement. So they would go in the winter, they would go uh, kind of hibernate. They would say, you know, it's too cold for us actually to fight. And then in the spring, they would come back out and continue the war. Well, up at this point, uh, the nation of Israel, they've been fighting with the Ammonites for what seems like forever. And they're pushing them back behind the wall of Rabbah. And so they're going back out to finish the battle. And so Joab and all the servants and all Israel are at war. And it's very important for us to no notice that. What we see is that every eligible male but David is at war. Every eligible male but David is at war. So the, other than the children and the court officials, every male is at war. David has become like other kings. If you look back in, in the text, David had actually been on the front line with his people. But now he is sitting at home, really using them to get his um to get his plan across he, he's using them he's devouring them he's consuming them but in the, the same attitude leads to the egregious sin that we see with Bathsheba and with Uriah see sin is not just about personal choices it's not just about making bad decisions it almost always impacts other people 
Sin is is self-seeking, it's self-satisfying, it's self-focused, but others become the means to making that sin possible. They become the means to make me happy or you happy, and we just end up consuming them for our own benefit. And so in verses two, uh, two through five, we see how David devours or consumes Bathsheba. He uses her as a means to an end. So here's the real question we have to ask ourselves. What exactly is David guilty of here? Now, growing up, here's what I heard. I heard Bathsheba was naked on a roof and she was tempting David. She's flaunting her sexuality. David falls into adultery. And so what's really portrayed is the Bathsheba was the tempter and David is, the, is just a sinner. He, he just fell because of bad circumstance. But what's the problem with that? It's not what the text says. Verse two, you notice it doesn't say that Bathsheba was on the roof. David was on the roof and saw Bathsheba. Bathsheba was bathing. She's doing a very normal practice. Um, there's no indoor plumbing. So often someone would bathe on a roof. And we see in verse four that this was a ritual purification. This wasn't just her, she wasn't flaunting anything. She was purifying herself. And it would have been after her menstruation cycle uh, to be you know, ritually clean. And so she's, she's cleansing herself, likely may have even had a partition around her bathing unit. But the reality is the way that the, the, that the architecture would have been, the only person who likely would have been able to see her was David. And so he sees her and then he doesn't stop. Verse three, it says he inquires. He inquires about her. He's like, oh, who is she? He sees that she's beautiful. And it's not wrong to notice someone's beautiful, but it is wrong to go beyond that. And so he, he lusts after her. And, and, and they say, you see here, it's not David who's pursuing, I mean, Bathsheba, Bathsheba who's pursuing, it's David. And it's not clear from the text whether the guards actually went to her and thought she was interested or if they just happened to know who she was. But they make it very clear, you know her. You know her father. This is the daughter of Eliam, who is one of your most trusted warriors. This is, in fact, earlier in the text, we would see that this is, she, he knows her grandfather, who is one of his counselors, and her husband, Uriah, who would have been one of his best friends, one of the 30, or the warriors, the elite warriors who saved David's life. And in fact, he owed his life to. That didn't stop David. It doesn't stop him. He sees, he inquires. And then verse four, we get something really uncomfortable. It says, the messengers took her. He, they took her, she came to him and lay with her. Now, if you understand any, any of the dynamics of the way the kings operated with, with, with their citizens, if the king told you to come, you came. This honestly doesn't sound like adultery. This sounds more like sexual abuse. And here's why. There's several things here that can kind of show us this. Notice that nowhere in the text, and in fact, nowhere in the Bible is Bathsheba condemned. At no point is she the one who's called guilty. Nowhere does, does it actually show us that Bathsheba seduced David. In fact, there's a vivid picture here of a ritually pure woman being brought before a lustful king. See, this is David's problem, not Bathsheba. During the 90s, there was something known as the purity culture. And if you ever went to a Disciple Now weekend or something like that, where they had true love weights, um, there was this real emphasis on purity and, and that if you sinned sexually, you were tainted. And I've heard some, some awful illustrations about like, you know, um, using a, a, a rose and passing it around and it becoming wilted and, and, and mangled and people asking, who would want this? 
And there was this massive attention put on the issue of purity and modesty. And I remember there was so much pressure put on women about not being the tempter of men. That it, that is, it was a woman's responsibility to not uh, inflame the, sex, the sexual desires of a man. And while there's mutual responsibility in how we live our lives for the sake of others, David French, who's a, a, a Christian political commentator, said this. He says, placing responsibility for male purity on women harms women. It creates an impossible burden. You cannot oppress women enough to protect men from themselves. You can ban porn, ban explicit movies, and movies of all types, put women in long dresses, prohibit makeup, and require courtship contracts, and you still will not solve the problem of sin. Joyce Baldwin says that as the king who could see the whole city, David had a responsibility to protect Bathsheba, not to be a predator toward her. There's a power dynamic here. At the very least, David is using a position of power to coerce sex. And and there's a reckoning that's happened in our country over the last several years with the Me Too movement highlighting um, the issues of sexual abuse. You know, we saw uh, this is this is seems akin to someone like Harvey Weinstein, who abused a position of power in order to sleep with women. And we've even seen this in some church circles where um, where some of this stuff has gone hidden. See, what sin does is it turns others into commodities for our own self-satisfaction. The problem is in our hearts. It's not external. All external stuff does is inflame what's already there. And so when sin turns others into commodities, we see what happened in Atlanta, where the, where the man went and killed eight people, six of them uh, who, who were um, Asian Americans uh, working in massage parlors. And the reason given was that they were a temptation to him sexually. We have seen this uh, across time, the sexualization and particularly of women of color. And what happens when you sexualize someone is they become dispensable. They become a means to an end. And that's why as a church, we're we're working through the caring well process, uh, a process that's uh, put together by the Ethics and Religious Liberty Council to help put policies and procedures in place that help dignify uh, and protect those who are vulnerable, that advocate for those who've been abused um, in order to um, create a safe place for people to come who have been abused, but also to put protections in place to help prevent it as much as we possibly can. See, sin devours, but it's not just sexual sin. All sin consumes. So if you hate another person, what you're saying is you're less than me. I have a right to treat you this way. I can speak harshly to you. If you steal from another, what you're saying is what your, yours is mine. If you lie to another, you're saying that you don't deserve to hear the truth from me. And so David's sin devoured Bathsheba, but it also devoured Uriah. He kills him in order to get what he wants. And so how did David get to this place? How did David get to a place where he would be willing to kill his friend in order to take his wife? You know, no one wakes up and thinks, I'm going to ruin my life today. No one thinks that. No one thinks I'm going to wreck my life with my sin and my choices because sin does have ramifications. We see is, secondly, that sin deceives self. Sin deceives self. Sin is ultimately a lie. It, it, it deceives by promising what it can't deliver. And so the first sin was really rooted in a lie. Uh, the serpent said to Eve, did God really say that? And, and we've inherited that. We've inherited this natural bent toward evil that makes us skeptics that God's will is actually good for us. 
that his word is good, that he can satisfy us, that his commandments will actually lead to life. And David, like all of us, like every person before him and every person since him believes this lie. He says, I have to have this in order to be satisfied. I have to have this person to satisfy my lust. That's going to do it. And so when you sin, what you're doing and what I said, when I do what I'm saying is we're believing something that other than God will give us what we think he can't give us or won't give us. And notice that David in deceiving himself into sin continues the deception starting in verse five, verse five, I'm pregnant, busted. David is busted. He's caught red-handed. But what does David do? Instead of confessing his sin, he covers it up. See, what sin does is it deceives us through covering up sin. Shame. This is There's shame that's been brought into the scene. This is now going to be public. It's going to be his shame and the shame that's been brought upon her. This is not first about guilt. See, in our culture, guilt tends to lead to shame. I feel guilty. I feel shameful. In this culture, in the Old Testament, public shame and dishonor would often lead to the feeling of personal guilt. And so David's attempting to cover this up. We see in verses six through eight, he tries to bring Uriah home. And this seems superficial from the beginning. Uriah is an elite warrior. This would be like, you know, bringing a Navy SEAL home when someone could have just sent an email to tell how the battle was going. This seemed fishy. And he, he, sent, he brings Uriah home and he tells Uriah, he says, he says I want you to go home, verse, uh, verse eight, go down to your house and wash your feet. And, and he, he goes there and he sends presents with him from the king. So basically go home, relax. Here's some wine and some food, which is probably what it would have been. Go down to your home. In other words, go enjoy an evening with your wife. You haven't seen her in a while. He's encouraging him, go home and have sex with your wife. He's trying to cover up his sin by thinking that if he can just convince Uriah that he's the one that got Bathsheba pregnant, then he, his sin is going to be covered up. But there's a, there's a problem with the plan. Uriah refuses. Verse nine, we see that Uriah refuses twice to do this. He said he wouldn't go down in verse 10, because if the ark, which would go out with the people of God into, into battle and the people were at war, if they couldn't come home and enjoy the being home, why was he going to go do that? In fact, he's actually kind of implicating David saying, you're not where you're supposed to be either. See, David and deceive, deceiving himself had forgotten his own rules. He'd actually outlawed sleeping with someone while a battle was going on to keep their focus on, on the war. See, covering up sin also causes us to compromise our witness, to compromise our morals. David was willing to break yet another law to cover up his sin. See, sin deceives us by sending us down a rabbit hole of more and more sin. It's like Wikipedia. You click on a Wikipedia article and you say, oh, that link looks interesting. And before you know it, you're 37 clicks deep into this Wikipedia wormhole. That's the way sin works. A single sin is rarely alone. Sin doesn't usually exist by itself. It takes other sins to help keep that sin going. And so in verse 10, David goes deeper down the rabbit hole. And basically questioning Uriah on why he wouldn't go home, he's kind of insulting him. He's saying, like, are you not man enough? Like, why wouldn't you go home? And in verses 12 and 13, he tries to get Uriah drunk. He says, I'm just going to get him drunk. He'll go home. Surely he'll sleep with his wife and this whole thing will be over with. See, covering sin takes all sorts of other sins to prop up the lie, to hide from it, to avoid it. In, in fact, David has broken four of the Ten Commandments, four of the six commandments that would be against other people and, and not including the commandments that are against the Lord. 
He's broken all of these. He's he's coveted his neighbor's wife. He's committing adultery. And, you know, any sexual sin is a breaking of the sixth commandment. Um, he's lying. And now he's about to commit murder. In verses 14 through 17, we see David hatches this plan. He gets to the point where he thinks it would be a good idea to send a letter to have Joab send Uriah out into battle to get killed. He had to do something to cover up his shame and his guilt. And we will either give our shame and our guilt to Christ to deal with, or we will continue to cover it up with other things, more sins, fig leaves like Adam and Eve. And we do this because the ultimate deception of sin is that it causes us to rationalize and justify our sin. I call it, David has thought at this point, it is a good idea for me to do this. But yet Joab sees right through David's lies. In verses 18 through 21, we, we see the event that happens. We see how um, Joab does what David asks him to do. He sends him out into battle and he, he sends a message back through a messenger. And he, and he says, tell, tell David these things. Tell David what happened. And, and, and when the king asks you, because he's going to, he's going to ask you, why did you put people up against the wall so closely? He tells this story about Abimelech being killed by a woman with an upper millstone thrown from the window. What's Joab saying? He's saying, you might be deceiving yourself and others, but you're not deceiving me. Joab was an elite general. He knew his war history. He, he wasn't going to, you know, he wasn't going to repeat, uh, you know, uh, Napoleon invading Russia. He's not going to do, he's not going to do that. He knows his history. He wouldn't make this mistake. He says, yeah, he says, so, you know, this Elia and your servant Uriah is dead. What you wanted happened, but don't deceive yourself. But David keeps getting worse and deceiving himself. Verses 22 through 24, David's reaction is so smug. It's, he's so high and mighty. He's so hypocritical. And hearing this, he sends back this message that he, he, he's almost above it all. He, his attitude's almost like, you know what? It happens. It, it happens. Verse 25, David said to the messenger, thus shall you say to Joab, do not let this matter displease you. For the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack uh, against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. He almost uses the sovereignty of God and weaponizes it. You know what? Sometimes people die. Sometimes people don't. He, he's deceived himself to the point that he actually believes, I think, I think he believes his own lie. Sin deceives you by keeping it hidden, by covering it up, by rationalizing it, by justifying it. And sin does this for one reason to destroy you. It has no other objective. It is not to give you pleasure. It is to destroy you and separate you from God. Genesis says that sin crouches and wait at the door waiting for you. Thomas Watson says that the old Puritan says that sin first course and then kills. It's not something to be trifled with. It deceives you. It, sin is to be eradicated, not to be nurtured. See, what happens is we start, when we start going down this wormhole of deception of sin, we start to ask ourselves, we, start, we, we compromise. We say, you know what? I know I have some lines I'm not supposed to cross, but you know what? It's, it's okay. I, I really care about this person. I really think it's okay for me. We start questioning, did God really say that? Does the Bible, does the Bible really say, this seems kind of old-fashioned, does the Bible really say this? We twist scripture in order to build it into our own image, and we, and we, get, we deceive ourselves to the point of not even feeling bad about it. See, we may fool others. We may even fool ourselves, but God's not fooled. The last part we see here is that sin does not escape God. 
David thinks he's getting away with this. He thinks he's deceived everyone. He's even kind of given himself as not, it's, it's okay. Only a few people know. He even kind of does the honorable thing and marries this widow after her time of, of mourning, brings her into his house. But verse 27 says that the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. All of it, the entire event, the lying, the, 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 the lust, the, the, the abuse or adultery, the, the, um, the, the, the murder, all of this displeases God. And God saw it. See, unlike David, who was a, was a terrible king, looking over a city and looking at how he could use others, God looks over all creation, all people, all people who are his, and justly and righteously reigns and rules. And so he sees every offense and ultimately, every offense against us is an offense against God. John Piper answers the question of what sin ultimately is. He says, it is, what is sin? It is the glory of God, not on the holiness of God, not reverenced, the greatness of God, not admired, the power of God, not praised, the truth of God, not sought, the wisdom of God, not esteemed, the beauty of God, not treasured the goodness of God not savored, the faithfulness of God not trusted, the commandments of God not obeyed, the justice of God not respected, the wrath of God not feared, the grace of God not cherished, the presence of God not prized, the person of God not loved. That is sin. There is nowhere that God cannot see. There's no hiding. There's nowhere that he can't go. There's nowhere that he is not. There's nothing that he does not know. And this is why Numbers 32 says that your sin will find you out. Jeremiah 16 says your sin is not concealed from God. And in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 5, it says that God will bring to light things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. He sees the depth of your heart, every action, every intention, every deed, every thought, which means none of us escape. None of us have a record that's good enough to present it to God and get in on our own merits. He sees our sin and our sin does not escape him. So the bad news here is the sin doesn't escape God. But you want to know what the good news is? Sin doesn't escape God. Because no, there's no sin that he can't see. There's no sin that he can't deal with. Next, This next week at Easter, the, the juxtaposition of Good Friday and Easter we are going to see on, e on Good Friday how brutal our sin is, how disgusting our sin is, how, how vile our sin is. It's so heavy that it required the shedding of the blood of the Son of God to pay for it. And here's the thing about that. God saw all of your sin. He saw everything David did here. He sees every thought, every intention of, of, of your heart. And none of that stopped him from sending, sending his son to die for you. None of that stopped him. In fact, it was his compassion which drove him to, to, to come and die for us out of his love. While we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. That God first showed love for us by sending his very own son. See, Jesus died on the cross to deal with the ugliness of sin. And he rose again. And so through the work of the cross, there's hope for all of us. If you're guilty of sin, if you're guilty of unspeakable sin, Jesus took your penalty on the cross. He took your guilt. And if you, if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, or you do place your faith in Jesus Christ, you can be forgiven. Maybe you're someone who's been hurt or abused or victimized by someone else. 
Jesus also took your shame. Jesus was publicly displayed upon a cross bearing bearing your shame. He knows what it's like to be shamed. Maybe you find yourself this morning going, you know, I think I'm I'm pretty good. Be honest with yourself. If Jesus is the standard and he was perfect, you you don't match up. You still need him to take away your guilt and your shame. So what's the call for us this morning? It's to repent and believe the gospel. The good news, to trust it, to, to, to believe that Jesus took our sin on the cross and to trust Jesus as Lord. So this morning, if, you, if, you already, if you've already done that, rest in that. The entire belief of a, life of a Christian is repent and believe the gospel. If sin is, is, is trying to creep into your life, repent and believe the gospel. If you doubt God's love for you, repent and believe the gospel. Or this morning, if you've not yet trusted Jesus, you've been on the precipice, you've been exploring for a while, we invite you to trust Jesus. We'd love to talk with you about what that looks like to help you receive him as your Lord. If sin is a lie, then the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is the truth that sets you free. And if sin seeks to kill you, it's Jesus who promises you new life. Let's pray.